just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Hello, my name is Johnny Ball, and I'm a professional speaker and persuasive presentations coach who also happens to be somewhat obsessed with the tools and psychology of influence and persuasion. With a show that started as a project for Toastmasters, which is an international club where anyone can come and practice their public speaking skills, to over a year and a half later, I'm still having a great time marrying my passions of public speaking and the psychology of persuasion. As a lifelong learner myself, it is my hope that this show helps you to become an ever more powerfully persuasive speaker. I first met my guest today through one of my professional networks, one that I happen to love and also I'm a club president for in the city of Valencia. It's called Global Business Owners. We do mention it at the start of the show and we did say we would talk about it a bit later on. We didn't quite get around to that, unfortunately, but I'm sure maybe we'll come back at some point again in the future and we probably will bring it up in conversation. Moeed is a member in the club in London, and he was delivering a presentation to the club about the psychology of influence, talking about the neuroscience behind sales and what gets people to buy. And that is very much my wheelhouse, the kind of stuff that I'm deeply interested in. So it was a very easy decision for me to connect with Moeed and ask him if he would be a guest on the show. He was very happy to do that. The show is very interesting in terms of getting into psychology, understanding neuroscience behind sales decisions and really what helps in terms of promoting yourself or your products, what works in terms of influence and persuasion in the market as well. And so much more besides. I know you're going to find it as useful as I did. I am, This is a show that I'm going to go back to regularly and listen to and get those points from Moe because there were things that I didn't know and I always love finding out things that I didn't know before and also speaking to people who really know their subject and know what it's all about. So if you are interested in the psychology of buying decisions and sales, then you are going to love this episode. And if you're just interested in influence of psychology and persuasion alone, you will get a lot out of this particular episode. I hope you enjoy the show. If you do, give us a review and let us know what you liked about it. And if you want to get in touch with Moeed, I'll tell you at the end how you can do that. And of course, if you'd like to find out more about global business owners, there will be a link in the show notes for you and just let them know where you heard about them. And if you do decide to join, connect with me. And if you want to visit the club here in Valencia, I will welcome you and we will meet in person, which would be great. So enjoy the show. And if you really like it, please remember to share it out as well and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. It really helps. Welcome to Speaking of Influence, the show where we're all about empowering you to become tomorrow's influential speakers and leaders today. Most podcasters now believe that live streaming is the future. The service I use to live stream is called Restream.io. Use the link in the show notes and after your first live stream, get a $10 Restream cashback. 
Welcome to the live stream of Speaking of Influence. And today we are having a bit of bonus time, but someone who I really wanted to bring onto the show after connecting with him through my own professional network, Global Business Owners. We'll tell you more about that later on if you want to know anything about them. However, he was doing a presentation about influence and persuasion, very much my kind of wheelhouse. And so I wanted to have a chat with him about that, about everything he talked about in his presentation. I thought, what better to do than invite him onto the show? So please welcome Muid Amin. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny, for that introduction. And yeah, really pleased to uh, be on the show, excited about what we have to discuss. Me too. Very much been looking forward to it. Now, you have you have a business that is set up around helping people in sales to be able to use like, things like neuroscience research and understanding of influence and persuasion to increase their sales and to understand the buying psychology of customers and things like that. This is stuff that people definitely need and want to know. Tell us a bit more about what it is you do and who you help. Yes, and and the me the medium on the channel of a lot of the people I help is, as you say, you know, people in sales or companies who are trying to improve the sales. But but actually, it's wider than that. It's it's about persuasion as as a whole category, right? And and in in order to sell, you've got to persuade. If you think about any business owner. I call it the 360 persuasion, right? That that owner, as an entrepreneur, you know, being technically gifted and having a great product is just not going to cut it. And you've got to be incredibly good at persuading that 360 dynamic. So you've got to persuade your investors uh, to invest in you and to believe in you and to come along with the journey. You've got to persuade your clients and customers to buy into your product and services and stay with you for the long term and continuing to spend more money with you. But there's more to it than just those two things. You've got to persuade your employees to give their best, right, to stay with you, even through tough times. And as an entrepreneur, especially as scaling up, there are going to be some teething problems, right? So you kind of, you've got to persuade them to stay with you and to keep giving their best. But also you want to persuade great talent who are not currently working with you to come on board. And oftentimes you're not going to be, going to be able to give them the, the fat paycheck and bonuses that they're going to be offered by bigger companies. So you've got to persuade them in different ways. Right. And then you've got to persuade the world at large to say things about you, whether that's good or bad, but just say something, right? So a big part of that is persuasion. And if you're going to persuade, you've got to know the psychology behind how people think, how people perceive the world, how and why they make the decisions that they do. And I, I, I focus a lot more on sales purely because I come from a sales background as well as neuroscience. I applied my knowledge in neuroscience, my degree in neuroscience to be successful in sales. And also because I think the current sales methodologies and processes and even the philosophies are broken. They're right. still stuck in the 90s. They, they, they don't even consider the psychology of how their buyers assess them, right? Or even the changes that are happening there. And a lot of that time I'm being asked by professional speakers to kind of help them understand that psychology, particularly in the virtual world, which, you know, is, is quite, it's still quite uncomfortable for a lot of speakers, particularly those who uh, rely on charisma. <laughs> to be charismatic in a virtual session, not impossible. In fact, there are some techniques, very simple ones that they kind of already know, but sometimes it's a mindset issue. 
So that's a little bit about about me and, and kind of the application of the neuroscience and behavior psychology that I involved I'm involved with for my business. Your business is called Proverbial Door, yeah. Well, that's an interesting name for a business. What 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 do you mean by proverbial door? Yeah, it, it's just literally getting your foot in the proverbial door, <laughs> and whether that's the the mind of the person you're trying to persuade or the company, you know, you're always getting that foot in that in that proverbial door. And more importantly, getting the other foot to follow you, right? And and staying there. It just came to me as a flash one one day. And I thought, you know, I haven't thought of a better name than that. I'll give it two more days. If I can't think of anything else, then we'll we'll register that name. Well, it is certainly distinctive. It, yeah. <laughs> it stands yeah. out. And of course, well, uh, it ex- you explained very well exactly why. It makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you this then. Before we dive into some of the deep level stuff, I'm going to talk about something that's been just coming up for me on my LinkedIn feed this morning, uh, sticking with stuff that's directly topical. A conversation from a friend of mine who's a neuroscience researcher. I've had her on the show before, Lauren Waldman. She calls herself the learning pirate. And uh, she is someone who helps to translate neuroscience research into what we can all understand and hopefully utilize for improving our education. And one of the things she's been saying and doing some work around and has a great article on actually is about how even platforms like LinkedIn are using the word neuro in front of all sorts of things, Mm. um, but often teaching a lot of brain myths and a lot of uh, stuff that actually has been debunked by neuroscience, but you know, people just keep sticking neuro in front of everything. I thought it would be interesting to get some of your thoughts around this. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, this problem isn't, isn't just um, confined to neuroscience. It's con- confined to a lot of information that's out there. And we're in a time in our in our in our history in our development where there's so much freedom of speech but there's a responsibility with that freedom of speech which is you know it's a lot easier for us to push our own agenda and the the line between integrity and it's not always malicious because we we sometimes don't have the information and we search for it on Google or whatever the search program you use. And it's it's whoever looks and sounds credible and happens to be quite high up on, on the search criteria. And there's that authoritative bias, right? And and recency bias element as well. Yeah. So it, it is a problem. And we kind of have to become mini researchers, right? And we've got to think about a few things, such as firstly, who's writing this? Right, because that will tell you a lot about whether they have the knowledge and expertise and and what their agenda is. So take the time to do that, and then secondly, you know who are those sources? Right, if they refer certain certain studies or certain people, have a look at who they are referring. If they're referring certain articles, have a look at who wrote that article. Have a look at who they source. So it does require a little bit more effort. I do believe that this is not confined to neuro. It's confined to a lot of things. Let me give you an example. I saw a picture on the post in LinkedIn, actually, of a, a wolf pack, right? It was a kind of a single line image, an image of a, of a single file of wolves walking through snowy woodlands. And this person wrote on the post, you know, something about how the leader of the wolf pack is always standing, uh, is always walking at the back 
They're kind of looking out for his or her pack and, and aligning it to leadership qualities. Now, luckily, I happen to know and watch a, about animals. I watch a lot of David Attenborough shows, etc. I'm fascinated by it. I instantly knew that that was totally incorrect. But when you look at the amount of comments that were there and some and the amount of likes, there are a lot of people that didn't realize that, that, mm. that this was incorrect. Luckily, there were a few people that did realize as well and were very vocal about it. So there is that kind of authoritative bias that we have to be careful about. And, and you kind of almost have to be that mini investigator, mini researcher. It's yeah. definitely not definitely not confined to neuro. It's just no, part no, and parcel I... of that, that, that. It's just part and parcel of that enjoyment we get for being able to have that freedom of speech at that scale that we currently have. Yeah, and I suppose the vast majority of people are not going to take that time out to become mini researchers no. because they they no. don't want to bother with it. So, so the myths will perpetuate until the newer understanding becomes more dominant and and knocks it off its perch completely. But those things take such such a long time. So yeah, thank yeah. thank for that. I know it's a bit of a put you on the spot kind of question. No, no, it's, it's a really good topic. Yeah, it's, yeah a really it's, it's a fascinating topic, and one of the things that I often find myself talking about is uh, some of the learning myths and teaching myths that get perpetuated particularly yes. in some of the personal development industry that i work in a lot of the time as well there, there's a lot of bs around and i think it's important for all of us to try and do our best to be uh, as updated with information and to not be te teaching stuff that has actually been disproven or has no real basis in actual research or or, or, or practicality yeah and sometimes it's not malicious Sometimes no, it's not malicious, Johnny. It's it's they're being misinformed, but they have they have good intentions as well. I mean, what I can say is that the world is not such a crazy place that that much inaccuracy or or, or I don't want to use the term evil, but you know what I mean can perpetuate and continue. At some point, the cream will rise to the top. Yeah. And as you say in, in the coaching industry, for example. Yes, there's a huge number of people who are coaches these days. There are a lot of charlatans. However, isn't it interesting that there are a few hand-picked hand people that are, that are known for being the best and they stay known for being the best? So cream will always rise to the top. Yes, there's a bit of pain and waste and, and, and misinformation. But I, I think some people won't take the time to do the research. But on the other side, on the other hand, it's actually even easier to do that research these days, right? Yeah. 30 years ago, it would have been a lot harder. You'd have to visit the library. I remember having to visit the library and look at encyclopedias, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's, it's on my phone. So I would, I would argue that it's actually easier. I, th I think you just need to put that effort. Yes. And uh, one, one of the things that I have been becoming more aware of recently is uh, a move. There are some moves around trying to move education to much more of a questioning examination rather than learning data and facts helping people yeah. to be able to do that ask better questions get more inquisitive things that generally the education system ha that probably you and i would be familiar with has not always been so good at uh, and tends to be more learn by rote or you know, learn learn your facts get tested on it uh, and not really encouraging inquisitivity or or questioning yeah, and, and that's a really important, and I, I'm a big advocate of that. There's a huge amount of stud, uh, huge number of studies around the power of questions, right? I mean, your brain essentially asks itself, itself questions all the time. You know, how do I feel about this, right? It, it may not be conscious, but that's kind of the, the channel, the subconscious channel for which it's trying to get to an answer. 
And there's a lot of studies that show how asking deep level questions actually cements and increases your understanding. And the, and the more you understand something, of course, the better you're going to be able to recall and remember it and apply it. Yeah. So I, I think I'm, I'm a huge advocate of questions because it, it's, it's, it's activating different parts of the brain and the cognitive process. So it's not just the higher logical prefrontal thinking. It's also the amygdala and, the, and the, the emotional element as well. Because when you ask questions, invariably it leads to how do I feel about that, right? And you're kind of almost putting voice to it. And, and emotion, the amygdala, is, is core to the five stages of sensory to behavior. It's also core to memory as well because we put, we put that into context. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of application for it, especially in maths. Uh, so in Sweden, they do that quite a lot, which I advocate. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a great way forward uh, and hopefully where we'll move to in the future of education. I think it is much more important than where, when we have um, so many ways to extend our knowledge now, even just through devices that we have with us all the time, we don't need to retain so much data we can look Agreed. stuff up really easily so it's far better to be encouraging those the creativity and the inquisitiveness and and taking people down new exploratory pathways where they can not need to know everything or store everything in their head as well necessarily that those become more important the different the different kinds of intelligence is like there's more than just uh, more than just iq Absolutely. to consider it's interesting that you mentioned about neuro being sort of stuck in front of everything. I, I think just a few years back, it was quantum being stuck in front of everything yes. and it, to the point where it became meaningless and probably yeah. had same similar kind of thing happening with neuro. Uh, I wonder what the next buzzword will be. Well, it's happening that. with AI. I mean, AI seems to be in everything. You know, there's the, it, the, and, and when you peel back those companies, and I, I, I was a, an interim chief commercial officer for a, for a small AI business. When you peel that back, there's a lot of A, but not much I. And, and, and <laughs> right. so it's, it's, it's not truly AI. It's, it's more like machine learning and, and, and algorithms. There's, there's a difference in terms of definition, but people are sticking AI in front of everything now. And often that's not the case. So, so I'm seeing that that's the buzzword at the moment. That's, that's the next trend that everyone's moving to. So hopefully re neuro can be reclaimed for people who are, yes. actually, <laughs> yes. are actually providing neuroscientific information and the likes. How, how useful has then neuroscience and your study of neuroscience been to being able to understand and, and apply sales and understanding of buying behaviors in, with people who are in sales, entrepreneurs and the likes? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. And, you know, in the beginning of my sales career, I, I struggled. You know, actually, my first sales job, I, I had to resign before they were going to fire me. Luckily, I was headhunted. You, you might think, why was I headhunted when I had to resign because they were going to fire me? We closed a, a great deal, but there were other areas that I was not very good at. And I think for them, it just wasn't going to work out. Luckily, I was headhunted because they heard about that deal. But when I went into that company, I was being taught the conventional approach. And I was trying to act like everyone else, even though it was completely contrary to, to, to who I am and, and how I like to conduct myself. And it was during the beginning of the financial crisis in 2008 when randomly I was cleaning my bookshelf and one of the books fell on my head. I mean, it literally fell on my head. And it was the, an old textbook, to, a textbook I had on behavioral neuroscience. And I, I, I just took it as a sign and I thought, well, is what I'm being taught and what I'm doing 
actually resonating with how people think and make decisions. So I started to go deep into the research again. And, and I'm, I'm not a PhD person or, or, or a professor or anything. Like I'm still a student. I'm still constantly learning. But I went deep into it and I started branching out more into behavioral psychology. And I found that in sales, we're absolutely not doing and not aligning our approach to how people think. Right. And I started changing my approach. And it was scary at first, but the results were incredible. I ended up being the top salesperson in 2009, which was right in during the, 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 the kind of financial crisis. We're still feeling I, I the effects. I remember it well, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, so, which was crazy because you'd think, well, hang on a second, that was a really tough period for salespeople. But my sales shot up. I think it was something like 280% to my target. And, uh, you know, I got to go on a trip to Mauritius, five star, all those things, but, but it continued. And how has it helped? Well, firstly, it's helped me understand more about myself. Why do I think those things about someone I'm about to talk to, right? What are the questions I need to ask myself? It's helped me think about how I retain information a bit better, right? How I create the right habits, you know, all those things for myself. But then it, it, it helped me understand how and why people make the decisions they do, right? What is it they're not saying, but they are thinking? And how do I draw that out of them? The power of questions, the power of delivering insight, right? At the beginning of the discussion, the power of emotional jolting, as I call it, but we can call it in the psychological term, it's pattern interrupt, right? right? Why was that so powerful? And what impact does that have on someone's focus, retention and memory and then application? So, you know, even down to the presentations, right? So the way that I talk, but also the, 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 the slide decks, which have become front and center during the virtual world that we're living in. So how, how do I kind of use that in a way that kind of draws the person's eyes, right? Draws their focus, draws their memory. How does that help them actually remember some of the things that we talk about afterwards, two days afterwards? Because most of what they remember, they, most of what you've told them, they've forgotten. But... They remember 100% of how they felt. Right. And then I started going even further, which is what is the feeling that I want them to have? And it turns out through all the research, the feeling you really want them to have is that they feel trust. Right? right. Doesn't have to be liking you or anything like that. Certainly respect you, but they respect you through trust. And that came out as one of the core things from all the buyers that I interviewed. So, yeah, it was incredibly helpful in that respect. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, that's fascinating. Uh, I know it's one of the things that uh, large corporations are probably known for a long time, really, that one of the only benefits really of TV advertising isn't that it necessarily increases sales, but it establishes that trust. It establishes that top of mind kind of thinking with things. And and they focus very much on the feeling that usually that their brand gives. Uh, McDonald's would be a very good example of that. Yes. And it's, it's the recency bias, right? So the more I know about you, the more top of mind. And it, it, emotions are incredibly important. So you, you've heard the, we buy because it satisfies an emotion. emotion. You know, people say that people use emotion in their decision making, but by, it's more than that. We buy because we, it satisfies an emotion of some kind. Even if you're being frugal with money, 
that satisfies an emotion because you associate your identity with someone who is careful with money. It's part of the social group that you're in where you feel pride in the fact that you're careful with your money, right? So again, even that's an emotion, even acquiring a lot of money. People say, well, money is my only, my only motivation. It's not true, right? There's a feeling that comes with being able to acquire all that money. Yeah. And, you know, People, you've heard the term perception is reality. It's not true. Emotions are reality. Because in the five stages of sensory to behavior, you know, it's, it's sensory. So it's what you sensor in the world around you with your five senses. Then is, there's the perception of what that sense, sensory feeling is, right? So you have some sort of perception around that. Then it goes to the emotional centers. That's when you say, well, how do I feel about that perception? How do I feel about that memory? Then it's, then it's uh, thought and then it's behavior. So it, it has to go through that emotional element for you to be able to think about it in a higher level thinking terms, logical terms, and then take ac- the according action. So emotions yeah. are, that's why the advertisements work. You know, Apple with their advertisement about daring to be different. You know, that's nothing to do with their product but everything to do with their emotion and what they stand for. So Simon Sinek talks about that, which is the why. And in B2B and in persuasion, when you're speaking to an audience, you're stirring the emotion in the people that you're speaking with. It's not just about data, facts, and figures, although that's very important. But you want them leaving, you want them leaving with an emotion that they're feeling quite strongly, rather than remembering everything that you've said. Of course. One, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was about how you were able to massively increase your sales by focusing on some of these things. What are the things then that people do generally tend to get wrong when it comes to perceptions of buying behavior and persuasion? Yeah, these are going to sound really obvious, which makes it even more criminal. First thing is that it's all about them. Right? So as the salesperson, it's all about me. Uh, even if I try to talk about the buyer and their world, it's still from my perspective, not their perspective. And people only care about themselves. I know how that sounds, but that's true. Right? They only care about you if they, when they realize that you, in some way, aligns to what I care about, which is myself. So... Salespeople continue to commit this cardinal sin, which is all about me. My angle, the reason that I'm calling, it's just all about me. And it's really rarely about you. So that's the first thing. The second thing that they do is that it's more of the same stuff, i.e. the same angles, the same data, the same pitch, the same benefits. And your brain you know, one of its functions is to, you know, it, it's very energy intensive to think logically, right? It takes a lot of glucose and your brain evolved from 100,000 years ago where you had to go out and find and hunt that glucose. So it required energy in order to gather that energy. Therefore, it was very precious. So it's quite lazy and it, it filters out things that it's already heard multiple times because now it's saying well it's not that important to our survival i'm going to continue to look for things that are outside the norm things that might be dangerous things that stir a lot of emotions in me so 
more of the same means that they might be looking at you, but they're not really hearing you. They're not really taking it in. The other one is that they don't think about the emotions. Uh, very, very rare. that In principle, like academically, they might know about it, but they don't apply it. So they still think about logical. They still think about business value as opposed to emotional value. Again, I'm not saying business value and logic is not important. It absolutely is. But you need to include emotional value and the emotional elements as well. And then the final one is, and it's a very big one, which is they don't consider the fears and the risks that the buyer is going through. I'll give you an example. When a buyer makes a decision, that carries risk to their job because they need to answer to someone for the fact that they've taken this decision. If it doesn't go well, it's a problem. And the bigger the solution or the bigger the change in the impact, the higher the risk. They're not thinking about the benefits of what you offer. They're thinking more about if this goes wrong, what impact will that have on me? Will it impact my ego and my job standing, which I find incredibly valuable, right? Uh, not me, I'm thinking, I'm saying from the buyer's perspective. Sure. Could I lose my job? That's a very real possibility now, right? Especially during COVID and especially during any financial crisis. So sellers sometimes get frustrated with that and they say, well, it made logical sense. Ah, that's the problem, right? You didn't think about the emotional side of what's making their decision that actually may be illogical, but it's greater to them. So thinking about the risks, and that's why we go for status quo. We stay the same because status quo is safety, right? When, when, when we were hunter-gatherers, we may have heard a rustling in the trees. People say f f uh, fight or flight. It's not true. Actually, if we don't recognize it, we stay still because fight or flight is very in uh, energy intensive again, right? We don't want to waste that energy. So status quo, stay still, gather more information, then decide if you want to fight or fly or, or hug it, right? Might be, it might be a friend. So uh, those are some of the main sins that are being committed by, by salespeople. However, I need to be clear about something here. A lot of the, those sins aren't committed because they they don't they know better, right? Or they they should know that they shouldn't be committing those things. Right. The problem actually comes from the leadership and the investors because they are they're applying pressure that is completely incongruent to the healthy growth that they're they're trying to achieve. So they want their salespeople to act in this way. But the pressure that they place on them based upon KPIs, measures, questions, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations are actually shifting them more towards the bad habits than anything else. And the leaders and the investors need to start to think about those things more deeply as well. Yeah. Because you can't, you, you can't persuade your team to act a certain way if actually you're placing pressure that's counter to that and you're persuading them in another way. It's, it's been interesting. I, I know that uh, I, I do a lot of listening to uh, psychologists and sort of group psychology and organizational psychology experts on various podcasts and things as well. Mm. And, and one of the things that I, I think it was from Adam Grant this came from, but it was something um, related to this, this idea of 
what works best in in a business when everyone is aligned to some sort of ethical values and, and greater good or where people are focused on making profit and making money when when everyone's aligned on that and, and the reality was that the the biggest problem was when was really just when the group wasn't aligned with what they were moving towards that it didn't actually matter so much yes. either way that yes. it was the lack of alignment within the organization that was the bigger issue to to the end results that they they ended up creating for themselves which, which i thought was fascinating but it's uh, de- definitely un- underscores this thing of you, know, you have to motivate people the right way for the kind of results you want to get and most people are just trying to do the you know if you've got if you've got a hammer everything looks like a nail kind of technique of management as well as like one system how it's always been done how they've been managed and it was good enough for me kind of thing it's like that kind of thinking i, I guess we've already sort of touched on that really with, with some of the, with some of the sort of concepts of talking about neuro and everything it's the same kind of thing of like the the myths that get perpetuated or the yes. practices that get perpetuated because people just don't know better Oh, they, they're not updated enough and they haven't things haven't progressed enough yes and, and you know what john it doesn't have to it's not even it doesn't even have to be complicated it's actually quite simple number one you're asking me to do something and yet you're acting in a completely different way you've broken trust right simple as straight away we don't have to put neuro or anything like that you've just broken trust right it's there's a dissonance there and and the second thing is Profit, profit and, and equity value or share value of the business is only interesting to a core small number of the people in the company. The rest of the organization, organization couldn't really care less. Now, we might say as leaders and business owners that they should because the more money we make, the more generous we might be with our bonus. Yeah. But they don't see that alignment. So it's a question of what, what are the shared values that the majority of the business are going to care about? Remember what I said to you that at the beginning? People only care about themselves. They only care about the other person if what they do aligns with what you care about. Well, that's exactly it, right? I don't care about whether you make more money. I care about whether I make more money. And if you're going to help me do that, great, now we're talking. Or or I care about the environment. And if you're going to do something about that, great, let's talk. But again, you've got to, and this is one of the elements of trust, which is consistency, one of the eight elements of it. You know, is there consistency in your approach, right? Are you saying what and acting what you're doing? So it doesn't even need to be complicated and put neuro in front of it. it, it it's pretty much what everyone knows and, and is common knowledge. And one of the things I did forget to mention when you asked about some of the cardinal sins is the language that people use. We forget that there are 7 billion people on this planet, but there are also 7 billion virtual realities on this planet. We see the world very differently to each other and and more importantly, our place within that world. And so we need to think about the social profile of the individual that we're speaking with, not just because they think about things in a different way, but because they use different language than we do as well. And their brain filters out things that they, they, f- they feel isn't aligned to that social profile and only allows in the things that are aligned to it. So there are many frameworks for that. You know, there's there's the Merrill Reed framework, which is you know, is the person an analytical versus a driver versus an amiable versus an expressive. You've also got the process communication management method, which is the, the, the six kind of social types. So one of the things I advise salespeople, which is think about the social profile of the person you're speaking with. What is it likely to be? Test it out. Don't don't assume or don't judge but at least be cognizant of that. 
And the more common ones are analytical, the thinkers. If we're using the PCM approach, the thinkers, the the rebels, you know, so the people that kind of look at humor and reaction. So, you know, those are the kind of ones you want to think about. So does your communication speak to their language? Because if it's not, they're not even going to hear what you have to say. Their brain will just filter it out using a reticular activating system. Yeah. One of the things that I've been talking about with some of my friends who are in the world of marketing and content marketing and the likes as well is about how important, not just brand is these days, but in con- in the context of relationship marketing, that, mm. that that's where brand seems to be important right now. And, and you're saying about having that emotion, emotional connection or understanding the emotions of your audience, that would lead me to sort of connect that with relationship marketing in some way of actually people feeling like they can be connected with you like you're saying because you both care about the environment or because you have some similar shared values in in that kind of way what what are you seeing or noticing in the general world of marketing in relation to that yeah marketing talk the good talk but i'm sorry to say that the majority of marketing doesn't do not practice their own what they preach and again, this may not be their fault. It could be pressure from leadership and the investors. So, but, but the reality is that marketing isn't doing it. Put it this way, it, it, especially at the very front end of the buyer's journey, there's an education phase, right? Where they, they, there's, they haven't even got to interest yet, really. They're just kind of exploring. And that exploration takes time. There's no urgency from their side. And they, you know, they're trying to basically gather as much information as possible in almost a kind of, not lazy, but in a a kind of just comfortable pace. But marketing coming in there at that phase when they're at that stage of their buying process with a different approach that actually would be more aligned to later on. And this happens in B2B a lot. And, you know, they're coming in saying, hey, we're doing this, we're doing that. These are the benefits. You know, do you want to have a talk with us? You know, you know, click-through rates, click, uh, you know, CTAs, have the action, right? And yeah. the buyer's just not there. So what does that do? Well, it means I don't trust you. The more forceful it is, the more I'm going to distance myself because I'm going to consider that harm. So marketing, in my view, don't seem to, don't seem to take that patient approach, which is usually required, especially at the earlier stages of the buying process. And like I say, it's not necessarily marketing's fault. Maybe they've got pressure from above. But the result is that buyers are more skeptical about marketing approaches. So that's one of the main, there are a few others and there are some articles we've written, but those are kind of the main, and I'm guilty of it as well, because I'm putting that, placing that pressure on myself. But but that seems to be one of the main things that they're doing that's harming them. Uh, yeah. more than anything else it's it's an interesting perspective and I can certainly see it and also very much see the resistance that people seem to have a lot more now to marketing and marketing processes that we're so deluged with advertising and marketing all the time that people are very quickly becoming resistant to any yes. new trend in marketing and so we're seeing so many things change in the world of online marketing at a very quick pace because of that increased resistance it's the like the ubiquity of it is that uh, it's just meaning that we're turning through i i do wonder if there's going to come some point where it's just like is marketing going to stop working <laughs> where, where well, are they going to go from there yeah i mean it, it, marketing have a hard job because we're very good at protect our brain is very good at protecting itself 
right? And, and we're great adapt, adaptive machines. So once something becomes the norm, and it's very easy for it to become the norm now because of the pace of technology and, and the kind of scalability and the reach of that technology, marketing are continuously having to come up with new ways to get someone's attention and get them to take action. So I don't envy the job that they have. It, it, it just that, that time to change has becoming, is becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah. And uh, so they're constantly having to consider fresh ways to do so. And, and that's, that's tough because the other thing that's, that's very tough for marketing to do and what buyers want, which is very hard for the marketing to do, is the personalization element, particularly from B2B. I, you know, I can talk about B2C, but I have a bit more expertise in B2B, and I can speak more about that. But a lot of those emails are automated. Yeah, social media messages, all of these things, they're automated. They're, 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 you're trying to capture as much attention as possible. The problem is the buyer won't resonate with that because their, excuse my language, their bullshit meter has risen, right? Their filter meter has risen high. So they're only going, to, again, we're going back to the thing which is I only care about myself. We're only going to allow things that are relevant to me. So the higher the relevancy, the more you stand out, the more you stand out, the more you're noticed. The more you're noticed, the more I'm going to focus on what you have to say. Yeah. But the problem is that it's very hard to do that for each person that you're reaching out to. So again, I don't envy marketing's job, but sales has a part to play there as well. Because as salespeople, we tend to send out horrid, horrible automated messages. In fact, I did a study, a personal study, where I deliberately tried to piss off about 2,500 buyers on LinkedIn through an automated approach. I wanted, to, I wanted to see what the response was because we talk about personalization, but I just wanted some numbers behind that. Yeah. And it turns out that the setting is very important, but very quickly after that first message, even if they accept the connection request, after that, you'd be lucky to get anyone to respond because they know it now, they see it. So marketing have a tough job there as well. And uh, in B2B, it's a bit easier because you can do account-based marketing. So you can really think about, but, but you know, don't try to do it with everyone. Pick those clients who are high net worth clients. Okay? Pick those people who have that kind of profile and work with them, right? Have a more personalized approach with them first, right? Don't, don't try to capture everyone else at the expense of the people who are giving you the most money. Right, so so use that personalization approach with those people, and as you start to get to know them more, you might be able to slowly start to scale some messages out to people that have a similar profile. And there are some businesses that are doing that, but I but too few of them are. Mm, I agree. You mentioned eight key points of influence. I'm familiar with Cialdini's six weapons of influence, but is this similar to that? Can oh, that's you trust through them. Yeah, so that's actually for establishing trust, which is core to influence, but it's not the only mechanism for influence. In a, you know, you 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 work with a lot of you know public speakers, right? Yeah. And this is absolutely as relevant to them. And there's a lot of uh, stuff that I can talk about in terms of some of that using neuroscience and behavioral psychology in terms of your speech and your presentation. We can talk about that later on. But trust is incredibly important. If I don't trust you, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to apply what you're saying. I'm probably going to go for a toilet break, right? In the phone. So, so this is a 15-year study that I've been conducting with about 400 buyers across 10 different industries to really understand both in a competitive bid and a non-competitive bid 
what made them decide to work with a particular salesperson and continue working with them. And, and it turned out trust was the, the major factor that almost, apart from one, every single person talked, said the word trust or honesty. And I dove deeper into this element of trust to try and codify it. Now, uh, Stephen Covey, the famous author of uh, seven, highly, seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he once wrote, not in that book, but in something else, he once wrote that trust is where character and competence meet. And competence, we, you know, it's hard to talk about because those are skills and they're very specific to people based upon their industry and things like that. But character is something that hasn't been uh, you know, discussed and explored very much in my, in my view. So I wanted to, back then, so I wanted to kind of understand what were those elements of, what were those characteristics of trust. So there are eight. The first one is authenticity, right? Are you authentic in your approach? Are you true to yourself? Are you doing things that are in line with your values and beliefs? And, and even, even when the buyer might have a different set of value and beliefs, and they might push you towards those, are you remaining authentic to who you are? It doesn't mean you have to be uh, combative with the buyer or the person you're persuading, but at least you're sharing that and they kind of respect you for it. So they trust you. The other one's consistency, right? So consistency in your approach, you know, whether it's personalized, professional life, you know, do you, you know, are you consistent in the way that you say and do things, right? So that's, that's quite important, especially if you're a buyer, you know, are you consistent in your professionalism and the thoroughness of your approach with someone who's just become a client where you're kind of courting them and it's exciting versus when they've been a client of yours for three, four, five years, do you still have the same consistency and approach and detail? The next one's integrity. No need to labor that. Do you speak the truth? Do you live the truth? Are you honest with your buyers? The next one is responsibility so, or accountability. So the buyer needs to feel that you feel that responsibility and accountability towards them. Do you fulfill your promises? Are you there even when things go wrong? Are you there in front and center to help them rather than what too often happens, which is when things are good, the salesperson is everywhere and loud and heard of. But when something goes wrong, they hide behind someone else in the team, right? And they allow product or someone else to kind of come and step up and fix the problem. So do you feel that sense of responsibility and accountability? The next one is, is guilt worthiness. So this was a study that was done by the University of Chicago. And it, it's, a, it's a long study. I, I won't explain it. But essentially, if you feel guilty about past actions and the buyer or the person you're persuading sees that, they are, the, the, the level of trust they have with you grows a huge amount. So I'll give you an example in a business setting. We, uh, I took over a, a division in a business that wasn't performing very well. The previous salesperson had treated this particular long-standing customer quite badly, which resulted in them leaving. Eight, so eight, eight or nine months later, after I kind of proven you know, the, the work that we're doing with other companies, I felt it was time to approach this particular person. However, I, I didn't approach in a normal way and try and brush it under the carpet. I actually expressed guilt for the, for the way that our business had treated him. And I said, look, I am personally, I wasn't involved. I wasn't even in the business, but I'm sorry that this has happened. You know, here are the things that we've done now to resolve this issue. Here is the work that I've been doing with other peers who are clients of ours, you know, and I'm sorry that this has happened. I hope that with a new person leading this business, there might be a renewed 
kind of appetite to speak to us because you're a client of ours for a long time. It seems it was just this person. So that person became a client of ours back within two or three months afterwards, right? And I, ex I expressed guilt that this had happened and I didn't try to hide behind it. So he instantly kind of trusted me and I asked him, you know, what made you, what made you become a client again? He said that, what you said mm -hmm. at the beginning and expressed it and held your hand, hand up and said, look, we're not going to hide behind it. So yeah. guilt worthiness is, is a surprising one that came out. That's of the very research. interesting. Yeah. Chris, Chris Voss talks about that in Never Split the Difference uh, in, in terms of yes. negotiating skills as well, right? Yeah. Yes, he does. Yeah. The other one is generosity, the penultimate one, generosity. And we all, some of us have heard about the rule of three to one, you know, give three things for one in return. The interesting thing about generosity is that if, it, if you use it on its own, trust goes down. But if you, if you use it while demonstrating some of the other eight elements, it will help you and trust will go up. The reason why is if you just do gender generosity, then people think you're trying to buy their, buy their, okay, buy them out, right? And there are plenty of examples about that. But generosity goes a long way to building trust because you're kind of giving them the olive branch, you're stepping into their world, you're helping them without looking for really anything in return. Well, no, not for without looking for anything in return, but for for their benefit as well, right? And and you know it might not lead to anything in return, but you're still giving that. So generosity goes a long way. Just make sure you're using it with at least a few of the other characteristics and demonstrating it. Yeah. Uh, and the final one is agreeableness. Am I combative in my discussions with you or I'm a bit more agreeable? doesn't mean I have to agree with you. I mean that I'm, the best word to use is tactful, right? right. Am I tactful in the way that, that yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you may have a different opinion, but do I kind of lock heads with you or... Do I take the time to understand your perspective, right? The word influence comes from the Latin word influere, which is to flow with. And I liken it to a river flow, right? The river flow is your opinion, your thoughts, right? You know, do I try and put a dam in the middle of the river to try and block it with my own opinion and you will find a way around it? Or do I get into the river and flow with you because I want to understand why do you have that opinion? Where did that analysis come from? Where did that thought come from? And with better understanding, I have a better way of being able to influence you because I can empathize and therefore share with you my opinion. The fact that I've stepped into your world increases trust because it takes it takes effort to do so. And uh, Dale Carnegie's book, which is you know how to win friends and influence people, you know, listening, trying to understand someone, it, it, you will go a long way by doing that because now I feel a bit more safe that I can share my views with you. And I'll be more open to what you have to say as well. So those are the eight characteristics of trust. That's good. Thank you. That's a very, impo very important lesson. And probably a lot of people like myself are going to be listening to that and s scribbling them all down <laughs> as well, because I, I think those, those are important to remember. Now, I'm, I'm aware that we're, we're coming up to uh, the full hour soon on the on the live stream, which will probably mean we get we get cut off. I think what, what we'll do is uh, we'll end the live stream very shortly, but we'll carry on. The conversation so people yes. want to hear what we carry on talking about for a little while longer if that's okay can join us in the virtual studio or can check out that i'll put this out not as part of the podcast but it'll be on the website and i'll make that available for people so if you're listening to the podcast or, or watching a replay of this check the website presentinfluence.com you will find this will go up there around the same time as the episode gets released in uh, a few weeks after we've actually recorded it but for, for people who are on the live stream right now tuning in and wanting to find out more about you what is the best way for them to connect with you and and find out more 
Yeah, so uh, a few ways, very simple ways. So website, uh, proverbialdoor, all one word, dot com. You can check out some of the stuff that we're doing there. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. So linkedin.com forward slash Moe Damin, which is my full name without any space. We also have a YouTube channel where we share some of these best practices, you know, things around business acumen, et cetera. And that's proverbial door. So, you know, you know, subscribe to the channel, have a look at our videos on YouTube. We're going to start doing a little, a little bit more on uh, Instagram, et cetera. But, but for now, those are really the best ways that you can uh, get in contact with me. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you in a little while about after the stream finishes about how this all relates to present presentations and public yes. speakers. You said you've done some work around that. So that's what we're going to be discussing. Uh, if you want to tune into that, remember, uh, subscribe to the show, but come and check out presentinfluence.com when the show is released and uh, you, you will be able to find this conversation there as well. I do like to ask my guests for book recommendations. So even though we're going to carry on yeah. speaking, I'm going to ask you now, uh, what resources or, or books would you recommend for people that may be related to this or, or just something you think offers great value to people? And, and I always find this a very tough question because I have hundreds at home and, and I'm trying, I, I read a, a book a week. You know, there's a, a book that was co-authored by Robert Cialdini, which I, I can't remember what it's called, but I can, I can send the link over afterwards in the show notes, which is, I think, 50 Ways of Getting to Yes. Right. So there are 50 scientific or neuroscientific psychological methods or, or of how to get to yes, which is to influence someone. Uh, I can get the exact title. I can't, the title escapes me. There's a book called The Inf Influential Minds by Tally Sharrett, which is a good book. She's yeah, a professor okay. at UCL in London. There are quite a few others, right, that I'm constantly reading. So it's really hard to pick one off the top of my head. The other <laughs> one is, is uh, I think it's Jocko, Jocko, Jocko Willinks, which is, God, what's it called? It's Radical Accountability or something like that. He's an ex-Navy SEAL, I believe. It's a great yeah, book. Yeah, I have, I have, listened, have listened to the audio book of that, I think, yeah. Great okay, book. Great stuff. Great book. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely recommend those three. You know, I, I have a book club, almost a list that I can share with people based upon what they're interested in. And I think I posted a picture of half of my bookshelf, which got something like 10,000 <laughs> views on LinkedIn. There's a lot, right? And, you know, books by Robert Greene on mastery and things like that are good ones as yeah, well. So. Are great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I tend to have most of my collection on audiobook or uh, download right. books, so I can carry my library with me everywhere I go, and uh, that that's how I like to do it. So my bookshelf doesn't look impressive, but if you look at my Audible or Kindle, the virtual bookshelf, it's, it's a different story altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Much yeah. like you, I like to do at least probably read about one or two audiobooks, one or two a week, and and Kindle books on top of that as well. And of course, I do still love having a, a physical book in my hand. There's nothing that's quite true. like it. For, for the people who are going to be uh, getting cut off on the live stream very shortly, what, what would be your, your words or your closing words for them, like a call to action or anything that you like to leave people with? Yeah. The world has become radically crowded and radically transparent. If you, your ability to persuade will will have a direct correlation with your success. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a sleazy salesperson or be an extrovert if you're not. There's, the, In fact, there's a lot of research and science that shows that actually the opposite is true. I, I'm not an extrovert and I'm an ambivert. So 
figure out what's comfortable for you when it comes to persuasion. And one of the biggest ways you can do that is consistently obsess about the person you're seeking to persuade and understanding their world. The more you can understand their world and ask them and do research as well, the better you're going to be able to step in there and actually help them see a different a different way and come to your way of thinking. So persuasion is incredibly important for success, no matter what line of work you're in. And don't think that you have to be this charismatic extrovert. In fact, those people are less trusted than, than others. So step into the world, consistently obsess and think about the person you're trying to persuade, whether it's a customer or whoever it might be, and come from their angle. And, and you'll find that more than 80% of the process of persuasion and success will come from those things. Fantastic. So yeah, that, that's, that's the final thing I would leave. Great stuff. Well, thank you for that. Anyone who wants to join us in the virtual studio, if you have questions for Marie that you'd like to ask, you can use the link in the description to come and join us in the virtual studio. We're going to wrap up the live stream here, but we're going to carry on the conversation. Thank you for joining us. And Marie, thank you very much for coming and joining us today and sharing some great information, the kind of stuff that I really love talking about on this show. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure you subscribe. Don't miss any incredible upcoming episodes. Whilst you're here, pop over to presentinfluence.com and grab yourself a free copy of the last minute presentation checklist. I've been hearing from professional presenters that they've been finding it very helpful and it could just be something that saves your butt someday. If you would like to hear the continuation of my conversation with Moeed, then please make sure you come and follow me on YouTube. That's where I'm going to be posting it. You'll be seeing much more specific content coming out for subscribers in the future as well. Next time on the show, I am speaking with Leandro LaRouche and we're talking about getting your book published. Also, if you want to join us in the live studio for recordings of the episodes, make sure you're following me on YouTube or other social media channels and I'll be telling you how you can even come and have live Q&A with my guests. Have an amazing week. See you next time. Go and make great things happen.